the FBI's concern because they want that authority. But here is the bottom line. It says the move comes as the FBI continues to expand its turf over narcotics and money laundering. <laughs> There's more at stake here than just the ATF. That's the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Department that has investigated Waco and uh, Oklahoma City and so on. There's more at stake here than just ATF, warns one agent. We're creating a national police force, and that should make people uneasy. These aren't things now you just hear on talk radio. They aren't things you just see on the Internet. Some of them are now hitting the national news magazines, which basically are controlled by uh, New World Order people. <coughs> This one is entitled, it's an editorial by the editor-in-chief Mortimer Zuckerman of U.S. News and World Report, this week's magazine as well. It's entitled, The Funny Thing About Holes. <coughs> he starts out by saying, my six-year-old daughter has a little puzzle. What is it that the more you take away, the bigger it gets? The answer is a hole. When applied to the United States, it's a fiscal hole. This year, after tax cuts took away so much revenue, our national deficit will be more than $400 billion. I think I read 480 last year is projected for either this year or next year. A recent report by the nonpartisan Independent Congressional Budget Office makes it clear we are not going to get out of this hole anytime soon. The gravity of the situation is that the 5.6 trillion budget surplus that we estimated would accrue over the decade when the Bush administration entered office has now, in just two short years, morphed into a 5 trillion plus deficit. They projected during the Bush eras there would be over a 5.6 trillion budget surplus. But it has only taken two years to go into a $5 trillion deficit. That's a $10 trillion switch. And it isn't getting better. We make the hole bigger. We keep digging ourselves in. The government is referring to the, to the deficits as moderate and manageable when in fact they are neither. <clears throat> Some in this administration seem to think that we don't have to choose, as President Eisenhower did, between guns and butter. They are not only willing to indulge in guns and butter, as President Johnson did during the Vietnam years, they're going for guns, butter, and tax cuts. Cut the revenue and spend more. For the moment, we're importing 500 billion to 600 billion a year in foreign capital to meet our current account deficits and help fund our deficits. I read an article last week how the Chinese are selling us goods, they're taking the money and buying U.S. Treasury bonds with that profit. And we are taking in 500 to 600 billion dollars a year <coughs> in debt to other countries. by borrowing money from them. For the first time in history, 
For the first time in history, America is paying out to the rest of the world more than it receives in interest, dividends, and other investment income. We are working for foreign investors. Everything we earn goes to foreign investors. If America's pride was in being self-sufficient, it has now built into its fiscal future a structural deficit that literally will make us depend on how the world responds to our budget deficit. In other words, if the world pulls the plug, we've had it. He concludes this by saying, know the first law of holes? When you're in one, stop digging. But we don't. We're still digging. All right, let's get on to a sermon and the things that really count. Not that these things aren't important. They show that the crash of Zephaniah 1 is well on its way. Now, last week, I gave you quote after quote from Herbert Armstrong showing that he believed in, as early as 1945, I don't know how much earlier than that, but at least as early as 1945, that there are conspiracies abounding in the world. And he even said that it is a conspiracy of world bankers, industrialists, and other peoples who are conspiring to rule the world. He made those remarks at the United Nations formative meetings in 1945, and he called the starting of the UN one of the most dangerous things that has ever happened on planet Earth. You might remember that quote from last week. Now, I've started into a series here on who is Babylon, who is the beast, and ultimately, what effect does that have on you and me? And this represents perhaps not a change in direction. Uh, the direction we are going is not changing. The first premise we need to consider and have and will is preparing the bride of Christ. We cannot leave that theme because that is what this is all about preparing ourselves for the kingdom of God, becoming like God in our thought and in our actions. This is a task we have found to be quite difficult to accomplish, and we have to keep working at it. So we will not get away from that, even in this series, which will deal a great deal with prophecy, that is always the underlying theme. That is the underlying theme of all the prophets is that we repent of being as we are and become like God, to have a heart like the heart of God. We heard about it in the sermonettes to one degree or another, how we cannot be friends with this world and be at the same time friends of God. He said, Christ said there in John 15, that if we are friends of this world, or friends of God, excuse me, this world will hate us. Now, if the world does not, 
today hate us, I submit to you that we are not enough of a friend of God. We are still far too much like this world if this world likes us. Do you follow that logic? We cannot be friends of the world. John makes that very clear in First and Second John. We have to be friends of God. I began the series on the Minor Prophets in 1996, and I want to review some of the series that have been covered in this congregation since that time, because we need to know what is happening to the church now, and what is going to happen to the church next. The Minor Prophets series covered, and of course it went on beyond it, but it covered initially through Hosea, Joel, and Amos what has been happening to the church since the separation and division began, why it occurred, where it will go, and what the ultimate answer to it is. We covered ground showing that God did this to the church. It is very, very clear in Scripture that God did it. Now this phase is winding down. The scattering and dividing is almost over because we're almost completely scattered and divided. Matthew 24, 1 tells us that there will not be one stone left upon another, that the church will be completely torn down. And we're getting very, very close to that. Attendance is dwindling in all groups, essentially, everywhere. People are washing back and forth from one group to another to some degree. But as this continues, more and more give up completely and go back to the world or sort of don't do anything, spiritually speaking. So this phase is nearing its end. We have seen a decimation of people who are faithful to God and even people who are just simply warming chairs and not doing what needs to be done. So we had the Minor Prophet series. Then there was a series entitled How Exclusive is the Church? which goes through and answers how big is the church? Whom does God include in the church? Does he include people out in the world who are good people? It answers questions about who are the guests at the wedding. Uh, who is in charge today? What authority do the Jewish people have, if any, today? And truth about the resurrections and the new heavens and new earth. I'm rehearsing these because we always have new people, and I think it is imperative that you listen to each of these series all the way through in order to comprehend the series that we are now beginning. Then there was a series on making a division between the clean and the unclean, and that the ministry basically, according to Haggai, which is God's word, 
is not making that separation, not making that difference. There's a series on who is the harlot, oh, excuse me, the temple series, which needs to be heard. Who is the temple, really? And is it necessary to have a physical temple in Jerusalem? And who would run it, and why? Is there any portent there for us? And what does God expect of his temple? It's a fairly long series, but it winds up showing where we're headed in the book of Matthew 24, and in Daniel, and even in Revelation. And those set the scene for this current series of who is the harlot of Revelation 17, who are the beasts of Revelation 13, and in Daniel 2 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 for that matter. We need to understand. Now, where are we today? And I want to go, first of all, to Revelation 11. Most of you are fairly familiar with this, but I want to include it as we get into this a little deeper. Because... There's something here we need to grasp, personally and individually. Revelation 11, beginning in verse 1. And there was given me, this is John speaking, he was the only living leader, really, of the church at this time, late in the 90s A.D. So this represents the leadership of the church at the end, because Revelation is an end-time book. <coughs> they had done a work to the world, as is rehearsed in chapter 10, verse 11. But the church, again, must do something. And Herbert Armstrong started that, 1933, really. But this is on beyond that. This is at the time that the two witnesses are about to appear. There was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given to the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread under a foot forty and two months. We've come to understand that the holy city today represents the church, not just physical Jerusalem. That plays its part. That is not my purpose today to get into that. But the point is that we, as the church of God, the temple of God, are going to be measured, both the ministry and the people. And if someone is coming to take our measure, brethren, we need to be sure that we are measuring up. If we read this prophecy and understand that God is going to cause us to be measured, then we need to understand what we are to be measured against, that is, what is the standard that we are to uphold, and be sure we pass, pass under the rug. It doesn't really matter from our standpoint today, in some respects, who these two witnesses of chapter 11 talk about as individuals, or necessarily exactly when they will come on the scene. What is important is that we measure up because God is telling us we will be measured. Now let's go back for a moment to Revelation 3, 
and understand something about the church at Laodicea. Now, I feel that I have proved unequivocally that all seven churches exist at the end time. There is so much internal evidence of that, plus the fact that the book of Revelation is written to the church at the end time. There may have been a fulfillment down through history, but it is quite clear that all seven exist at the end when you understand. And that's covered in some of the series that I just mentioned in detail. But those of us who are at the end are in a an era in that sense that is predominant and one that God is currently dealing with. Verse 14, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, and Laodicean means judgment of God, write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning or beginner or instigator of the creation of God. So this is on high authority, John is telling us. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. Now, some people say that we don't have to have works. But the faithful and true witness of God, the judgment of God, includes works, doesn't it? Interesting. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. People will be spewed from God's mouth at the end. Today, the church looks like so much spittle that has been spewed. Erp, vomit, whatever you want to call it. That which was in the contents of the stomach which could not be tolerated, that which nauseated to the point God grew up. He barfed the church out. Because, now we get to cause and effect, because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Most people today would say, I'm a Philadelphian, and there's nothing negative written about Philadelphia, they would say. Now, you other people are Laodiceans, but I am what? I am rich and increased with spiritual goods. I'm a Philadelphian. I'm okay. So by taking that very approach, they make themselves Laodicean, just as I have and as you have. We thought we were okay. And know not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now, if we were in that condition physically, we would know it. When someone rings my telephone or knocks on my door and I'm just getting out of the shower, I can perceive quite clearly whether I am wet and naked or clothed. That is not a problem. It is seeing our spiritual condition which is a problem and which we can easily and in which we can easily delude ourselves and deceive ourselves. I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire. Most will go into tribulation because they do not have a clear view of their true spiritual condition. We cannot afford 
to allow ourselves to deceive ourselves, brethren, we must take stock. That you may be rich, truly rich, with treasure in heaven. And white raiment, our sins forgiven, our sins confessed and forsaken, so that we might be white before God. And that the shame of your nakedness do not appear. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. We're talking about people who simply cannot see what is going on in either their lives or the organization they happen to be in or the rest of the church in toto. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, be zealous therefore and repent. We have not had necessarily, or it did not start out as, a crisis in doctrine. The crisis described here is in righteousness. We have not been righteous in our relationship with God or with each other, thereby for breaking both ends of the Ten Commandments. And truly, all the Ten Commandments refer to our relationship with God as well as our relationship with man, even though they're divided into two sections generally. If you break one, you break them all, with man or with God. That's just the way that it is. This did not start out as a crisis of doctrine. It has in many respects become a crisis in doctrine, and doctrine continues to divide as people study and study, and they come up with various and different ideas People flake off from this group, that group, because of different beliefs. Now, it is my contention that if we had enough of the love of God, we could be able, through patience and love and consideration, have a certain amount of doctrinal divergence or difference, and yet still walk together in love and peace maybe not agreeing on everything, but not becoming contentious and divisive over it. But sometimes we are forced by attitudes to divide anyway. Those attitudes should not exist among us, brethren. We're not going to tolerate Sunday keeping. We're not going to tolerate monkeying with God's calendar which has been done by the Jews. We're not going to tolerate a lot of things because they're clearly anti-God, homosexuality, for instance, as was read in the sermonette. But when there are misunderstandings or different understandings, <clears throat> we need on issues, they should not be divisive. We should be willing to love one another enough to work on those things until we come to see the same way. I may be wrong on some things. You may be wrong on some things. Why do we need to fight? Why do we need to divide? Primarily because of self-righteousness and pride and ego and a desire to do things our way. It's sad but true. 
But God does not address that here. He really addresses the standard of righteousness. And that's what the measuring of the temple and the altar has to do with. Are we full of love? Or let me back up the way it's written in the Bible. Faith, hope, and love. Is that what motivates us? Do we have the Spirit of God producing the fruit of His Spirit, or is there still far too much carnality, and that's why we have trouble getting along? We have trouble melding together as a family because of our pride and our ego and the works of the flesh. Let's go back to Zechariah 3. I want you to see a very important point here. Now, I covered this at least in principle in the Minor Prophet series, but I want to put it together in a little different way here. Zechariah 2. Now, this is very clearly an end-time prophecy, and the two who are mentioned in Zechariah 3 and 4 are the two witnesses of Revelation 11. There is no question on that because chapter 4 and verse 14 clearly defines that. The only two places the two anointed ones or sons of oil are mentioned are in Zechariah 4 and Revelation 11. So when this one refers to those mentioned elsewhere, it can only be that reference. So this is clearly right at the end time, isn't it? I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then said I, Where go you? And he said, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth thereof and what is the length thereof. Now the end time temple is the church. We are the Jerusalem and Zion of the end, as Hebrews 12, 23, 24, 25 clearly point out. It is the church that has to be measured. Tie this together with Revelation 11, 1 and 2, and it's clearly the altar or the ministry and them that worship therein that are being measured, not the physical dimensions of a physical city in the Middle East. You can look that up in any encyclopedia. But God's rod or plumb line to measure with is a measure of uprightness, a measure of righteousness. That is what has to be measured, is our level of righteousness. That is what God condemns us for in Revelation 3. And I think the only thing, the only safe ground for you and me is to say, I have been rich and increased with goods. I thought I needed nothing. I think I'm okay today. I need to change my attitude and anoint my eyes with ISAV and see what really is wrong with me. You can't change the other guy. You can't condemn them as Laodiceans, considering yourself a Philadelphia. Now, I've been over this ground before. But let's go to chapter 5 of Zechariah, because I think this has to do with exactly what we're talking about. Verse 14 describes the two witnesses in Zechariah 4. Then it goes immediately to chapter 5. Then I turned. And lifted up my eyes, and looked, and behold, a flying roll. Now, this was not a Twinkie. It was a scroll. It was something that was 
in the air that was could be read. And he said to me, What see you? And I said, I see a flying roll. The length thereof is twenty cubits, and the breadth thereof ten cubits, which is the same uh, dimensions as the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant. Then said he to me, This is the curse that goes forth over the face of the whole earth. Now here is something that the whole earth is going to be cursed by, judged by. For every one that steals shall be cut off as on this side according to it, and every one that swears shall be cut off as on that side according to it. In other words, it represents the laws of God. Probably written on it with the Ten Commandments. Because you're cut off on one side if you lie, cut off on another side if you swear. I will bring it forth, says the Eternal of hosts, and it shall enter into the house of the thief, and into the house of him that swears falsely by my name. So it is something that people are judged by. And this goes over the whole earth. Was not Worldwide Church of God a worldwide church of God? Were there not members all around the earth? Continuing in the end of verse 4, And it shall remain in the midst of his house, houses, spiritual houses, or individual houses for that matter, and shall consume it with the timber thereof and the stones thereof. <laughs> that which supports the house and those stones which form the walls around it. Now we are called living stones, are we not? In the New Testament, it's part of the temple of God. And God says the whole temple is going to be torn down. It will be judged by the word of God, by the laws of God. Then the angel that talked with me went forth and said to me, Lift up now your eyes and see what is this that goes forth. So he addresses Zechariah and says, What is this that goes forth? Look at it. And I said, What is it? And he said, This is an ephah that goes forth. Now an ephah was a measure of grain, a measure of fruit, whatever you put in it, like a bushel basket we'd say today, because we don't use ephahs, we use bushels. And what do you do with a bushel basket? You go out and harvest the garden, the fruit of the trees, the fields. So it is a measure of a harvest. Well, what is the harvest at the end? It's a harvest of souls, is it not? The fields are white, but no one is there to harvest them. This is a part of the harvest that goes forth. He said, moreover, this is a resemblance through all the earth. So he says, whatever is in this basket is pretty much the same worldwide. Wherever the harvest is. And behold, there was lifted up a talent of lead... And this is a woman that sits in the midst of the ephah. A woman is representative in prophecy of a church. So, the church is the harvest of God at the end, isn't it? So here is part of the harvest depicted by a woman sitting in the basket. 
And he said, this is wickedness. <clears throat> There's something wrong with this harvest. Something wrong with this woman, this church. And he cast it, the judgment, the wickedness, into the midst of the ephah, and he cast the weight of lead upon the mouth thereof. So this woman, who speaks evil wickedness out her mouth, has lead cast over her mouth, cast over the basket, and if you will, over the harvest that is in that basket. Then lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there came out two women. And the wind was in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork. A stork is an unclean bird. So, symbolically, two churches picked this harvest, this woman, this church up, and do what with her? For they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the ephah, the harvest, the basket, between the earth and the heaven. This basket was not acceptable in heaven, and it cannot be acceptable on earth either. We simply cannot accept the contents of that basket. Then said I to the angel that talked with me, Where do these bear the ephah? And he said to me, to build it an house in the land of Shinar, that's in Babylon, and it shall be established and set there upon her own base, not on God's foundation, but on her own base. I believe the worldwide church of God is represented by this harvest of people who have been called at the end. And that two churches don't know exactly what that means. Perhaps it is the church of God defamed and declawed and detoothed and defanged and watered down. And perhaps the churches of this world to whom it has gone. The evangelicals, perhaps they will have intelligence with even the Catholic Church, as shown in Daniel 11, Catholics and her daughters, the Protestants. Two women, maybe it's represented by Joe Jr. and Joe, I mean Joe Sr. and Joe Jr. Both of them took the church to Babylon. And it is set up in Babylon on its own base, not the foundation of God. So we have mentioned that the church must be measured with a plumb line in Zechariah 2 and again in Revelation 11 and that the people and the ministry have to be measured. And then immediately after the two witnesses are introduced here and they are told that they must feed the church of God, all seven of them, if you go through chapter 4 it becomes clear because it ties in directly with Revelation 1, 2, and 3. Immediately thereafter, it shows a harvest. And could it only be any harvest but the harvest of God, which has gone sour, which is not following the wishes and commands of God? 
that is shut up, and worldwide has pretty much been shut up, hasn't it? It no longer has the mouth that it had. The lead has been cast in its mouth. It doesn't have a worldwide broadcast, a worldwide plain truth anymore. It is fast disappearing. And just recently, an edict came from Pasadena that no longer will we tolerate Sabbath keepers. We must quit putting up with that. But now they must all go to Sunday. It has been set on its own foundation, its own base, in Babylon, the plains of Shinar. Back to the worldly system, back to Satan's system, and away from being a harvest of God. So contrast that we will be measured by the word of God, and the fact that I think this refers to worldwide has been measured by the word of God and found wanting and has gone back to Babylon. But what does he tell us to do? He tells us to flee from Babylon, to get away from it, that we be not partakers of its sins and its plagues. We must define what that means in every respect. Otherwise, we also will be cut off. That is why this series is important to us. We have to define who Babylon is, and I think we've done that now in the first few sermons of this series. We now need to define who the beast of Revelation 13 is and who the second beast of Revelation 13 is. We need to understand that this is a period of judgment for us. and that the standard is God's righteousness. His love, His faith, His hope, His laws, His precepts. Let's understand where we are before we move forward now. Let's go to 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3. <clears throat> Paul thought he was in the last days when he wrote this to Timothy. And he understood what was to happen in the last days. He was wrong in his timing, but he wrote it for us. God caused that to happen. This know also, that in the last days, that's today, for you and me, this know that in the last days perilous times shall come. Now when Paul described perils in the deep, his life was in jeopardy. He was in great and dire danger and circumstance. He could have drowned very easily. The word in the Greek means dangerous times. Terrible, fearful times. And it even uses the word fierce and describing perilous in this Greek word. Are we in a time of peril today? Have you seen friends and relatives depart from God, go back to Protestantism, 
or just sit somewhere in an organization or in their living room doing nothing, backing off. We are told we cannot shrink back, that we must move forward to the saving of our souls. You can't shrink back. These are perilous times. People are dying spiritually in the church and being carted off to Babylon and set in their base there. Now here's what creates the peril. Verse 2, For men shall be lovers of their own selves, selfish, self-centered, materialistic, getting, grasping, wanting for self whatever the subject of the day might be. Covetous, wanting that which they do not have. Now, have we gone through and shown that the great harlot of Revelation 17 is an economic thing? Not religious, but economic for the most part. And that materialism is rampant in our country today. Covetousness is what makes the world go round today. It is what is going to make the world grind to a stop, but at the moment, it's what drives the economy. And American stuff, American society, the American way is what the whole world is coveting. We have a world that is covetous. We are materialistic. Our world turns on things. Money and things that money can buy. That's covetousness. Boasters. This describes us today. Who is the proudest nation on earth? We are boasters. Proud. And it talks about the most proud in Revelation 17 and 18 coming down. Well, maybe that's in Jeremiah 50 or 51. Blasphemers, the things that come out of our mouth, blaspheme God. Watch a sitcom for a little bit, if you dare, and you will hear, oh my God, about every fourth sentence, it seems. God's name is blasphemed continually. There are certain words the world won't say because it describes something that stinks or whatever. Well, we can't say that. But you can blaspheme God's name and it means nothing. Completely acceptable. They don't restrict a movie because it says, oh my God, over and over. They restrict it because of the S word or the F word or whatever other word you cannot say. But blasphemy is okay. Disobedient to parents, we have a society today in America in which most of the church exists, in which children rule over the homes. They not do, do not do what the parents say, or they don't do it when they're told, but they usually talk the parents into letting them do what they want to do and or do what they want to do in spite of what the parents say. Unthankful. 
We, as a people today, are basically unthankful, and we as a church are unthankful. We spend time griping and complaining about what we don't have or how things are not, as opposed to being thankful for what God has given us. We have the most precious knowledge on the face of the earth. We understand why man was created. We understand where we're headed. We understand that there is a true God. And we're not humanists or Scientologists or vegetarians. We know there is a God who created all mankind in this whole universe. And yet we bitch and gripe and complain about what we don't have or the way things are. Shame on us. Unholy. That is, not like God, but like the image of man. Without natural affection. We've got weird affections today, but we've gotten away from natural affection. And that we must return to. There must be love and closeness among us and within us. We cannot be standoffish. We must learn to get along and to have real, true, godly affection one for another. Truth breakers can't believe what people say. They say, I'll be there tomorrow, I'll be there next week, I'll do thus and such. Doesn't happen. Their yes is not yes and their no isn't no. False accusers. Now this isn't this is the world, but it's also the church. You, I, can look at someone and think we know what they are thinking. We can decide and make judgments on them without reading their heart, and we become false accusers. Incontinent, that is, without self-control unable to control our thoughts, our actions. Do we begin to see Revelation 3 here? Fierce. Quick to anger, in other words. Despises of those that are good. We'll find something wrong about anybody, won't we? Maybe we have people who are trying and working and are doing well, even though they have their faults and their problems. Form of godliness. The world calls itself, America calls itself a Christian nation, or at least some people call it that. And we call ourselves Christians. But how much like Christ are we? Do we deny his power? I can think of many ways where we say God is God, but then we go the way of the world because we have a problem at the moment and we go to the world to solve that problem rather than to God. From such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses 
we could say spiritual houses too, churches, and lead captive silly women laden with sins led away with different lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. A wind of doctrine goes here and there and everywhere today, and people are led away by every wind of doctrine, it seems. But they never quite come up with the truth. Now, I won't continue that, but we are certainly in perilous times, and that describes the church as a whole, it describes us as a congregation, it describes me as a person. All the humanity and the carnality that we have that we must be getting rid of and becoming like God, because it was my fault that the church got blown apart. I was rich and increased with goods, I thought. I thought I was a Philadelphian. I grew up in the church. And yet I look at my life and I don't see a life that has been just like God by any stretch of the imagination. It is time for us to grow, to overcome, and to repent. And to anoint our eyes with eyesalve. All right, the church has been struck a great blow by God. And I'm not going to take the time to go into Lamentations and all the prophecies to show, along with Revelation 3, that God is the one who spewed us out. We've been through that. We've covered it. If you, read, if you listen to those series I just named at the beginning of this sermon, you will see that because it's very clear in Scripture. So that blow that has been dealt the church, it is clear came from God. I have another question for you. What comes next? When will the next blow strike and what will it be? The blows are not over. You think you've been whipped and pushed around and tried and tested so far and gone through all that you've gone through and that I have gone through. The specks of vomit all over the ground where God has spewed us out and we all have our war stories, don't we? All the organizations we've been through, all the misuse and abuse by the ministry, all the misuse and abuse between us as members, each other. We all have this long story and when we get to know somebody, often we'll sit down and we'll recount how you got to where you are today, and they will recount how they got where they are today. And it is a sad story in most cases, isn't it? Of how we've been pummeled and pushed and beat around and misused by the ministry, including me. I hope I'm overcoming it, but in times past, I was one of them. I'm trying to change that love God's people and be gentle and kind with them instead of an overlord. If the ministry doesn't take Ezekiel 34, Jeremiah 23, and the book of Malachi seriously, the ministry will be destroyed, dismissed, and become defunct worldwide. So where does the next blow come from? What comes next? I've taken so much time with this, I hardly have time to get into it, but we'll start. 
And I want to tie this with what I talked about last week, and that is that there are conspiracies going on in the world. There are people who want to rule the world today. That has always been the case. Now let's approach this by beginning in Revelation 12. We need to understand where we have been as a church and where we are headed next. We need to be prepared. We need to become righteous and put on white garments because the blows have not stopped. They will not stop. They will take a different direction, but they will not stop. They will not stop until the resurrection for most people. Revelation 12, there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. I'm not going to stop and define this woman right now. We will get back to this and it will have to be done because there is some false hypothesis going on about this right now. And it is based on a wrong premise and came up with some very, very wrong uh, analysis which con is contradicting to every prophecy in the Bible. So this must be looked at. But I want to go down for the moment to verse 3. There appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. Now this will remind you, will it not, of Revelation 13 and of Daniel, where we have long felt that there would be a resurrection of the Roman Empire, of the Gentile kingdoms, at the end. And we could look for seven heads and ten horns. But let's understand that the great dragon, Satan the devil, is the first one mentioned having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. In other words, this beast that we will get to in Revelation 13, the next chapter, the dragon that is behind this beast, is the one who starts it, is the one who empowers it, is the one who gives it its authority and strength. It is a beast comprised of people, but it has sinister forces behind it, the occult, demonism, Satanism, is what is behind it. So whatever beast you see rise up at the end will be empowered by Satan the devil. They will worship Satan the devil because this great wonder is seen in heaven, from heaven. Notice in chapter 13. Uh, well, no, it doesn't. I don't guess it gives it here, but over in chapter 17 it does. Uh, it talks about the seven heads and seven mountains and explains it to some degree the mystery of this beast. I'll not get into that in detail yet. We'll get to that later on. But we need to understand what it is that we are fighting and where the next blow really is going to come from. Uh, let's go to Job 41. 
Job 41. And here I want verse 34. Job 41, verse 34. He beholds all things. He is a king over all the children of pride. Now, God hates pride. He tells us that he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. So, Satan is the king over all the children of pride. We must get rid of all pride and all ego. We must become humble. Otherwise, we worship we know not what. But then, on the other hand, now we do know what, don't we? So we have to fight back our pride and our ego and ourself. There is one who is the king over all the children of pride. And this is not a proud world. All Texans have some repenting to do. And all Americans. And all citizens of the earth. Because pride knows no bounds. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4. I was born in Texas, by the way. Here it talks about those who have used the word of God deceitfully. Verse 4, In whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine to them. Now there is a group of people on earth today who have desires of ruling the world who call themselves the illumined ones, the light givers, the illuminati is what they call themselves. Those who have light. They actually worship Satan. And that is darkness. Now the truth is, God gives light to his people. If there is an Illuminati, brethren, it's us. Christ is the light bringer. Satan is a bringer of darkness and death. Christ brings light and life. Satan counterfeits everything God does. So when George Bush Sr. said, we're a thousand points of light, or the illumined ones, he was not referring to the church of God, I'll guarantee. He was referring to the new world order. Is there a new world order coming? What form will it take? Is it the beast of Revelation 13, or is it not? And who is behind it? Satan is the god of this world. Christ even told the Jews who thought they worshipped the true God, you worship you know not what. They were worshipping Satan and didn't even know it. Now, these so-called illumined ones today outrightly worship Satan and say so. They are in witchery and the occult, the new world order, the new age. There's new age music, which is satanic. may not appear that way because Satan appears as an angel of light. Anything you, anytime you see new age on something, you should know its source, and it is not God. 
even though it appears angelic. Satan is the god of this world, and he deceives the whole world. 1 John 5. 1 John 5. Oh, I think I want John 5. Do I'll find out here in a minute. I must have wanted first John five. Why do I doubt myself? Mainly because I've been wrong so many times. That's why I doubt myself. First John five, verse nineteen. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in wickedness. The whole world lies in wickedness. Now do you see why we can't be a friend of the world? The whole world lies in wickedness, or under the wicked one, that could be translated. He is the ruler of this world, prince of the power of the air. I ask you a question. Is Satan a deceiving, plotting conspirator? There are people who do not believe in conspiracies, conspiracy theories. What about Satan the devil? Let's go to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. Verse 2. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. There are only two powers on earth, the power of God and the power of Satan. And if you do not understand the truth of God and are not repented and are not walking according to the light of the scriptures, then you are in darkness and worship you know not what. The spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. You know, there are a lot of Protestants who decried the taking of the Ten Commandments out of the courthouse there in Alabama. But most of those people who wanted the Ten Commandments left there don't believe in them. They believe they're done away with, that you don't have to keep them, particularly that you don't have to keep the Sabbath, because that's one of the ten. They believe in grace only. They don't believe in works, even though God says he'll judge us by our works in Revelation 3. It says right down here in this same chapter, verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Now, salvation is by grace, by unmerited pardon. Don't get me wrong. It is a gift of God. But a lot of the judgment that God uses in determining whether or not he is going to give us pardon that we do not merit or deserve is how we walk and live and the works that we produce on this earth, whether they are good or bad. Where in time past, verse 2, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, 
among whom also we all had our conduct in times past in the lusts of our flesh. Only when we become converted to God's truth and his way do we come out of this world. There is only black and white. There's God's way and there's nothing else but Satan's way. In times past, fulfilling the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Someone recently was quoted as saying, I don't understand what Daryl gets all excited about and how we have to fight against our nature. Because that person apparently thinks that their nature is good. I'm not going into a sermon today about human nature, but there are a lot of scriptures about it. Satan is the ruler of this world. Is he a conniving conspirator? When did conspiracies start? They started when Satan conspired with a third of the angels to do what? Rule the universe. Conspired against God to rule the universe. There is the origination of conspiracy. Now who? That is the greatest conspiracy that has ever occurred in the universe. That conspiracy is not finished. He conspired to take over God's creation, and then when God created man, what did he do immediately? He conspired with the only two human beings on earth to go against God and erect God's plan for mankind. He conspired with the demons because that was, or with the angels because that's all he had to conspire with. As soon as human beings were put on the earth, he conspired with them. Johnny on the spot. So Satan is a deceiving, conspiring, plotting conspirator. Now we've already seen that he deceives the whole world. So if he is a conspirator, does it not follow that there would be others whom he affects on this earth as human beings who also conspire? Adam and Eve did, conspired with him. They started it. Revelation 12:9 says he deceives the whole world, implying that all he lacks, brethren, is us. He has the rest of the world totally deceived. The only ones that he has any concern about today are the children of light, the truly illumined ones, illumined through God's work. Those are the ones that he is after. Do you begin to understand where the next blow will come from? God has scattered us. Now Satan will start trying to pick us off. Has man ever tried to bring one world government? Shall we go back to Genesis 11? Shall we read about Nimrod and the Tower of Babel? 
and how Nimrod brought people into the cities so that they could be what? Controlled. We read in Romans 1 in the sermonette today, I think it was Romans 1, wherever it was, about how there were those who were conspiring before the flood and were unjust before the flood and how they brought that through the flood and Nimrod picked it up and started the Tower of Babel and God said that it would become one world if he did not stop it. And what did he do? He confused their languages so they could no longer conspire to take over complete world domination and rulership. There was a conspiracy. Now take your conspiracy theory and stick it in your ear if you don't believe in conspiracies. There is a huge conspiracy. Do you realize that the roots of that conspiracy exist to this day? What happened at Babel and Babylon has come through. People all over the world worship a Madonna and child, a Nimrod and Semiramis and Horus. They have different names for it in different countries, but that unholy trinity is everywhere. That's where the trinity began. Well, it really began before that. There was a trinity of angels, Gabriel, Michael, and the one who became Satan. And Satan thought that he could take those three leaders and all the angels and overcome God, but only a third followed him. Those, those who were managed by Michael and Gabriel remained faithful to God, and he became one corner of an unholy trinity. He used human beings to create a trinity. Nimrod, Semiramis, and Horus. And people still worship those today. We call it the Madonna and Child. It's called different things in Egypt and in China and wherever around the world you want to look. Daniel 11. Here's another conspiracy here at the end. Touch on this briefly. Daniel 11, verse 21. And in his estate, someone with a razor of taxes will be destroyed after a few days. And in his estate shall stand up a vile person to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. How do you do that? Through political means, through a conspiracy, where you get this person lined up, that person lined up, someone else lined up, and you take the kingdom through plotting, planning, and conspiring. There is a conspiracy in the end of a person who will be a leader. There is a conspiracy within the body of Christ. If you go on down to 
let's see, verse 30, the last part. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant. This power that is on earth at the end time will have intelligence with those who forsake the holy covenant. And what will they do? They will conspire to destroy those who have stuck to the holy covenant. I think probably the worldwide church of God who has our names and addresses, baptism records and everything else will go to the religious leaders and the beasts and reveal who we are. They will have intelligence with the beast. Is that a conspiracy to kill God's people? Yes, it is. It is a conspiracy, is it a conspiracy of the leaders of this world and its new order? Yes, it is. Conspiracy against God's people. Satan began conspiring against God's people in the Garden of Eden and he's never stopped. And he uses people to do it. Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Why are the heathen nations all upset and alarmed and excited? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together. They plot, they plan, they conspire together against the Lord and against his anointing. The rulers of this world will conspire against God's people. That's how the book of Psalms, which is a prophetic book by and large, starts. Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their courts from us. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. They're going to make their attempt to destroy the holy people. Or God will laugh at them. Then shall he speak to them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son, this day have I begotten you. He's going to use Jesus Christ as the answer or the antidote to this conspiracy against God's people. Ask of me, and I shall give you the heathen for your inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. God shows the ultimate answer to the conspiracies of the rulers of this world. He will take care of the problem. But meanwhile, you and I have a problem, don't we? They will conspire to kill us all. And I think I can show you some scriptures to indicate that they will kill some of us and that they will probably kill the majority of people who were called at this end time. Nine-tenths will go into tribulation, and only a remnant will be saved out, a faithful remnant. And even some of them may be killed as martyrs to show righteousness. But it will be taken care of in the long, long run. Be wise now, therefore, O you kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. 
God challenges them. says, are you going to listen to this? Or will you conspire against my people anyway? I'll break you in pieces through my son. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That's what he counsels them to do. Are they going to listen? You bet not. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way. We better give Christ the holy kiss, he says. And the leaders of this world better too, or they'll be destroyed with the brightness of his coming. He's going to take the beast and the false prophet by the nap of the neck and throw them into a fire when he comes. Lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. He doesn't have to get very angry to destroy those who would conspire against him. Psalm 83. Keep not you silence, O God. Hold not your peace and be not still, O God. For lo, your enemies make a tumult. God hears a lot of noise down here on this earth today in which the enemies of God are making a lot of noise and confusion on earth. And they that hate you have lifted up the head. They've lifted their head in pride against God. They've taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted against your hidden ones. What is crafty counsel, brethren, if it isn't a conspiracy against? They have said, Come, and let us cut them off from being a people, that the name of Israel may no more be in remembrance. Both spiritual Israel and physical Israel are being conspired against. There will be a coalition against the United States, for instance. For they have consulted together with one consent. They are confederates or conspirators against you. The tabernacles of Edom and the Ishmaelites of Moab and the Hagarenes, Gebal and Ammon and Amalek, the Philistines, with the inhabitants of Tyre. Asher also is joined with them, and they have helped the children of Lot. He gives a whole list of Gentile confederates or conspiracies or coalitions or whatever synonym you wish to use that will come against the people of God. Satan has us as his primary target, really his only target, because he's got the rest of the world to deceive. They don't know they're deceived, but they are. Did Absalom conspire against David? Did Jezebel conspire against Israel? Go through the books of the Judges, the Kings, the Chronicles. Conspiracy after conspiracy against the kings and against the Jews. Read Esther. Paul had to be let down in a basket. Why? Because there was conspiracy against his life. Conspiracy of the Jews against Paul. On and on it goes. The Bible is full of conspiracies. We could go to Daniel 2 and 7, but we'll get there soon enough. But God shows that he is going to teach men that there is one God, that he sets up the governments today and the kings and the rulers, and he has put the basis of men over the nations. When you look at the world rulers today, you can know that they are the basis of men. They may not appear that way, 
but especially here at the end, they are the basis of men. Therefore, God says that we should pray that they let us live in peace, because they have conspiratorial ideas against anyone who will obey God. God is going to set up a world-ruling kingdom under Jesus Christ. God shows that about 90% of the population of this earth will die in World War III in its aftermath. That is what God is going to do. Satan always counterfeits. Today there is a conspiracy of humanists and Scientologists, the Illuminati, the Jesuits, the Masons, Various groups <coughs> are conspiring to reduce the population of the earth to a sustainable number. That is a number which they feel can sustain the dogs and the cats and the kangaroo rats and the spotted owls along with mankind. And they have come up with the solution of destroying 90% of the Earth's population, keeping the population of the entire Earth at about 500 million is the number they throw out. And it's over 6 billion now. That means most of it has to go away. Satan is conspiring through the leaders of this world who see problems with humanity. They see a polluted planet, and it truly is polluted. We've polluted it. Man has done it. Their solution is to kill most of us because there are just simply too many of us and we don't worship dogs and frogs. Now God has a different view of the problem. He sees man which has departed from him and is lying in wickedness and been deceived by Satan the devil and he has a plan whereby most of the population will be decimated in order to humble it so that it can come back and be taught the truth and live and live forever. God has a plan and a solution which will cause most of mankind to live forever. Satan has counterfeited it by also saying, I will destroy 90% of the earth's population, but guess what? Under his plan, they would never live again. Under his plan, they would never have salvation. God has a righteous solution that will humble people, and when they come up in the second resurrection, they will be ready to listen. Satan has a plan which is very similar, a close counterfeit, but with no happy ending. That's the difference. And you and I are looking at a beast which is now being formed and is taking shape before our very eyes which Satan is planning to use to destroy mankind. And the whole world is going to worship that beast. I think for sake of time I'll stop right there We'll pick this up next time, but know that what is about to be worked before our eyes is unrighteousness and wickedness, and it is something that has to be avoided at all costs.
We must come out of Babylon lest we partake of her sins and her plagues. We need to understand exactly what and who Babylon is, who this beast is, what it is planning on doing and becoming righteous so that we can be accounted worthy to escape what Satan is about to unleash on this earth. There is much, much more to be said, and we'll get on with it beginning next time.